This episode of the Oz Movie Geek podcast is sponsored by Kix. Kix is an online film and television retailer specializing in the latest Sony, Universal, and Paramount films and television shows. You can use the exclusive code OZGEEK15 to receive 15% off your order. Thank you to the wonderful team at Kix. Now to the review. Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Oz Movie Geek podcast. I'm your host, Pato. Today I'll be covering the new Mike Flanagan Netflix series, Midnight Mass, which debuted here in Australia, uh, I guess worldwide as well, at the end of September. And it was a show that I was highly anticipating, mainly because of Mike Flanagan's involvement. Uh, He's quickly become one of my favourite filmmakers. i followed his career since his debut feature, Um, with Oculus and, well, I guess studio feature because it was his big break. And since then, he's just created some of the better horror films of recent memory. Uh, Of course, Doctor Sleep being one of my favourite films of 2019. And he, of course, directed the fantastic Haunting of Hill House in 2018, which is one of my favourite horror series uh, of all time and one of my favourite series in general. I think it's a fantastic show. He's also directed films such as Gerald's Game in 2017. Uh, He had the double whammy, or triple whammy actually, in 2016 with Ouija Origin of Evil, Before I Wake and Hush. Um, And yeah, he's just become one of those filmmakers where it just seems to be consistent uh, through all of his work. There's just a lot of films out there, I guess, with a lot of filmmakers attached to them where they either drop in quality or they don't live up to the filmmaker's previous works. And, of course, there's exceptions to the rule. But Mike Flanagan has just become the master of consistency because everything that he's done, I've just been a huge fan of. I've really enjoyed what he's able to do behind the camera. He edits all of his own work as well, which I appreciate. I love that he writes all of his own films and, and television shows as well. He, of course has, you know, some some outside help as well with Midnight Mass being co-written um, and him not being the sole writer on it. But it just seems to be that he, he establishes really good atmosphere without, you know, doing the generic jump scares, which a lot of horror films do delve into. Midnight Mass is an incredibly slow build, but it's a build to a... A payoff that might not work for some people, a payoff that worked for me, but I do have my qualms with it. It's not perfect by any means. But up until that point, it was just these slow, you know, dialogue sequences that really engaged me just because of what they were talking about. There was a lot to like here, uh, whether it be the performances, the fantastic direction, or just the the culmination of it all in, in the finished product. It just feels really unique and different and I love the setting as well but there's a lot to dive into here guys so let's just get stuck into it this will be a spoiler filled podcast because I can't really discuss it without getting into what the reveal is at the end of the show Um, so yeah here's your warning if you haven't seen the show then don't listen to this podcast go and watch the show first and then come back Uh, but yeah it's a show that I've had a lot of fun with so without further ado guys let's just get stuck into it so take it away trailer I walked across an empty land I knew the pathway like the back of my hand Welcome home, honey. Where you belong. Is this the place? 
this to love? Is this the place that I've been dreaming of? I know you struggled with what happened. With what I did. Yes. With what you did. But help is here. A simple thing. Where have you gone? Good morning. I know I'm not who you expected to see. Just know I'm only here to help, and I look forward to meeting you all. So tell me when you're gonna let me in. I'm a pretty rational guy. Something's happening here. You're gonna let me in. We are living in a miraculous time. You're gonna let me in. I mean, what's a little crazy between friends, right? Come on. What are you doing? Come on. What is wrong with you? Stop it. It's not funny. You'll be with us for what comes next. So Midnight Mass, like I mentioned, was written and directed by Mike Flanagan and stars Kate Siegel, uh, Zach Guilford, Kristen Lennon, uh, Samantha Sloyan, uh, Igby Rig. Uh, Rigney, uh, Rahul Kohli, uh, Annette Clement, uh, Annabeth Glish, uh, Alex Esso, and Rahul Aburi, uh, and follows an isolated island community who experience miraculous events and frightening omens after the arrival of a charismatic yet mysterious young priest. So that's the general premise of the show. So we are introduced first to Zach Guilford's character who has been involved with a drunk driving incident which has resulted in the death of a young lady. Um, and we pick up the show four years later after the court hearing where he has now been released from prison after his stint there. And he's returned to his, um, uh, to his I guess, place of uh, where he's grown up. It's where his family live. They own a small fishing business, and it's a coastal town, I believe, off the coast of New York. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're out on this small community, uh, and as he has arrived home, also a young priest has taken up the reins, as it seems that the Monsignor, who is a part of the local parish here for their Catholic church, um, has, yeah, gone home. So St. Patrick's being there little ch- uh, church there he's grown uh, ill and returned to the mainland um and yeah i guess we follow this priest as he seemingly is performing miracles in this town some weird things are happening dogs are being poisoned uh stray cats are washing up dead on the beach and we don't really know what's going on um and that's really the general premise. So I guess with this review, what I'm going to talk about is the breakdown of the plot and what we're dealing with here. So 
the reveal of who the priest is being probably the most important aspect of the of the series. We know something strange about him. We don't really know what it is. It, it, he seems to be the guy that's come to town that everyone's in love with. Uh, he's performing miracles, like I mentioned. There's a girl who was involved in a hunting accident, um, and her she's now paralyzed. Uh, she, well, not paralyzed. She's quadriplegic. Sorry. Um, and she's yeah unable to walk, and uh, she seemingly can walk again. We have a lady suffering from dementia. She no longer has dementia, um, and yeah, that's really what we're dealing with here. We don't we don't really know what's going on to start with, and it's very interesting um, to see the development of it because I think the mystery is the most intriguing aspect of the show. So for the first four episodes, we're really not sure what's going on. It seems that there's a strange creature um, that is living in the town. We don't really know what this strange creature is. Um, we see glimpses of it. So the very first episode, we have a group of kids that are sitting around, you know, having a smoke, um, and there's heaps of stray cats. So we're introduced to the stray cats element quite early on. But among the stray cats, it looks like they're one of the kids sees something, Looks like it's a figure, and I paused it on it to see because we see this figure a couple times in the show, and those who are familiar with Mike Flanagan know, of course, with uh, Haunting of Hill House. He hid ghosts everywhere in that show, so people will be on the lookout to see if there's a lot of that here. There really isn't. There's a couple here and there of this creature lurking in the background, but this show makes you quite aware that that's what we're looking at very early on. Um, and yeah, we're not revealed of what this creature is until later in the show, so... It, it's an intriguing aspect and it's probably the creepiest aspect of the show. The priest himself isn't scary in by any means. He's a bit odd, but he's not really, yeah, he's, he's not creepy. Um, but yeah, the, the general premise, I guess, is that, yeah, he's, he's come to this town and he's, he's doing things and healing people and everyone's like, what is going on here? Uh, the reveal, uh, I think we should just get stuck into because it's going to help me talk about the rest of the show. So essentially the priest is actually the sick Monsignor. He has come across this weird vampire angel creature in the desert, uh, that has given him life again and has brought forward his best self, um, returning him to his youth. So that's where, who the priest is. He, he is the Monsignor. He's just young, um, again, uh, and he's been um, putting the blood of this vampire creature in the wine of everyone, and that's why all these miracles are seemingly happening around the town. Um, but they, uh, upon their death, they then resurrect and become full-fledged vampires. They can't go out in the sun, um, and they need to feed on blood to survive. Um, and the reveal itself of this vampire angel aspect was kind of disappointing. I wasn't really expecting it to happen, so it could have been a bit of a shock, which it was. Uh, and I sort of picked up that the priest was the younger priest quite early on. I think it was the third or fourth episode. Uh, I just had this little inkling. I was like, I don't really know what's going on. And I was like, he doesn't. And then they, they show the newspaper clipping of, you know, the priest from the 70s um, of the Monsignor. And they're like, oh, you look exactly like him. And I was like, oh, well, that's him then. That's that's what's going on. Don't know how it's happened yet, but that's what's going on. Uh, and the, the show does explain it all to you uh, through a confession, which was an interesting plot device to show it. The priest is poisoned by Bev, who is probably the worst person I think I've seen in a TV show in recent memory. Not the character herself. She's incredibly interesting. But if you've ever seen 
the mist. Uh, she feels exactly like the woman from the mist. Uh, she's awful. She's one of those. She she's incredibly religious, but she's religious in the wrong. I guess she she's doing it for the wrong reason. She she believes she's better than what she actually is, and because of that, she is quite toxic. And she's really not a good person. So, yeah, she she's awful. And the further the show goes on, the further you're just like, oh, when is this woman going to, to get hers? Because she is honestly awful. And she finally does at the end, uh, turning to Ash in, in uh, dramatic fra- fashion. But it's, it's incredibly satisfying watching her die. Um, the way that the show develops, though, its characters, we get a monologue seemingly every episode from one of our main characters that gives us insight to who these people are. The monologues, at some points, I was found them to drag on a little too long. There's one in particular where our two characters, Kate Siegel's character and Zach Guilford's character, are both talking to each other about what they think happens after death, and it goes probably for 15 to 20 minutes, the two of them just talking, which is fine. I'm, I'm all for the dialogue sequences, but because of the repetitive messaging that they're getting across, it felt like Mike Flanagan's trying to reach a word count and he just kept going and going and going. It plays into Kate Siegel's death at the end of the film, which is quite satisfying in the sense that she seems to be at peace, which I really enjoyed. And we get the in uh, a cut with their conversation. And it's like, oh, it has a payoff. That's why it was there. But it was such a long conversation that it sort of lost a bit of its meaning because of that repetitiveness of their conversation. It could have been broken up a little, but, you know, my complaints here in regards to those monologues and things, that's obviously what Mike Flanagan's going for, so I don't want to break them down and complain about them too much because I think they work really well for the story that he's telling. Um, There's some really good moments as well. There's a fantastic sequence uh, where the sheriff in the town who is uh, Muslim, so it introduces the different religion here, which I really enjoyed, I mean, essentially, the uh, Sheriff Hassan and his son have moved to this new town. And, yeah, they're practicing Muslims. But the town itself is quite heavily Catholic. uh, And this Bev character has handed out the Bible to everyone because of these uh, miracles that are happening in town, saying, oh, everyone needs to find religion, essentially. And that's what she's trying to get across. Um, And Sheriff Hassan has a huge issue with this because it's a public school. He calls for the, um, I guess, the parents' advisory committee to all meet, you know, the um, like a parent-teacher conference setting uh, to discuss it. And he's just like, it's inappropriate. Like, how would you feel if you sent your kid to, you know, a public school and they walked home with the Quran? And I was like, yeah, that's interesting. It's a good point of view to take. And I enjoyed that conversation. And I like that we had his character in the film because I guess you could look at it as religious propaganda in a sense. Um, but the film doesn't glorify either side. It's not glorifying Catholicism at all. It's just providing an interesting look into Catholicism and how that mentality can really affect you know, a community if it's misconstrued uh, through incorrect messaging. Um, and I found all of that to be incredibly interesting. I really, really enjoyed that conversation. I thought it was really... Um, yeah, really unique, and I thought it was really well handled. So I, I had a really good time with the way that the, all of that was set up and those conversations because the philosophical questioning that's going on and 
all of that messaging is incredibly important to the overall story. And I think it's handled in a really thoughtful and meaningful way, which is something that, not that I wasn't expecting from Mike Flanagan, but it was something that I wasn't expecting the the series to go into as much detail as what it did. The most interesting character for me was Zach Guilfoyd's character, Riley. So essentially, Riley, like I mentioned at the very start, he is involved in a, uh, a drunk driving accident that results in the death of a young girl, which sees him go to prison for four years. So he has had a very different perspective of life over those four years, living in prison, uh, serving his time. And during that time, he's really found a, I don't know, a sense of, it's not fulfillment and it's not enlightenment. It's a sense of, I guess, I don't know, it's a, it's a weird one. Maybe he, he's sort of become a bit of a realist in prison. So he, he's he's not really a pacifist, but he's sort of thrown religion away because nothing helped him during that time. Um, we have a few scares early on. Uh, every night when he goes to bed, he just sees the lifeless corpse of the um, poor girl who died from um, the, the accident and the police light sort of flashing on her face. And it's quite confronting and quite horrific and i guess because of how he takes it every night when he sees it uh we get the his reaction um to what he's seeing each time and that reaction is i guess just acceptance that this is what he has to deal with because of what he's done and it's a like i said it's an interesting perspective because he's not really taking i guess a, a a look at life saying, you know, I, I was hard done by, and he, he completely understands what he's done wrong and he's living with the consequences. And it's really interesting to see that character. His dad played by Henry Thomas, uh, isn't as accepting of his son anymore. He seems to be pretty heartbroken, um, over his son and father Paul as well. Um, I guess sort of brings that out of him, a little too because he's going to the mainland to go to his Alcoholics Anonymous uh, meetings and when he returns back to the island, Father Paul's like, hey, well, why don't you just um, do it here? There's no need for you to keep travelling to the to the homeland. Let's save a couple of hours. Um, and we sort of have an implication maybe that Father Paul is an alcoholic, which doesn't end up being the case when we see the re- uh, revelation that he's actually a vampire. But um, we sort of have that... Um, interesting conversation that's introduced as uh, Joe Colley, who uh, was responsible for um, disabling that young young girl in the hunting accident as well. Um, and he's just a horrific alcoholic too. So their relationship um, that sort of forms very briefly, and it is only very briefly because Joe Colley gets killed by Father Paul, um, which was a pretty horrific sequence. Uh, but their conversation as they finish their first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting together, um, we sort of get this implication maybe that Joe Colley's sort of, he, he's better now. He just feels that he ha- he's accountable for his actions. He's been forgiven by the girl who he harmed and now he can sort of move on with his life in the sense that he doesn't need to feel guilt anymore. It's sort of been taken away from him. Um and I like that. Uh, it was interesting and like what he did was horrific, don't get me wrong, but you feel for him in the sense that 
it destroyed his life and it was an accident and it's pretty pretty sad to see how it's consumed his life as well it's not like the catalyst for the situation being of course that she is now in a wheelchair but Joe Coley now is also uh yeah he he's his life is pretty much over the poor bugger for the last 18 years has drank himself into obscurity and it's it's very sad um, for both parties, but you see the effects of both parties. And we get a bit of that with Riley as well. Um, I found that to be really interesting. It was really well put together because Riley is accepting of the fact that he's reserved. He he knows that it's his fault and he deserved exactly what he got. So Riley's acceptance of that provides a different perspective to the overall um, theme of guilt in regards to the guilt that a lot of people feel, and it, it runs pretty thick through all of the characters. Um, we find out that the doctor of the town, uh, who is the daughter of the dementia patient, um, after the dementia patient gets better, we have a little line where she says, uh, that's not the man I knew, um, speaking of Father Paul, and then we get the revelation at the end of the film that uh, actually uh, Father Paul is uh, the father, the actual father, biological father of the doctor and had a relationship with the dementia patient. So that's why he was so keen. He keeps going back and seeing her and you're like, why is he so fixated on this one woman? But that's why, because it's actually um, a woman that he was intimate with and had a child with um, and the guilt that when she dies at the end of the film... Uh, or the series. I keep saying film because it does look incredibly um, similar to a lot of Mike Flanagan's film uh, works, especially Doctor Sleep. The cinematography is very, very similar. Um, and it is quite cinematic, the show itself. But, uh, yeah, so that theme of guilt runs through all of these characters in that sense too. And I really enjoy uh, seeing, you know, those themes run through the characters because it sort of puts in perspective who each of these people are in the context of this story because it's a very isolated story, uh, not only in its the environment or the setting of the story but actually the way that everything plays out as well. It's isolated to these characters who are all very intertwined with one another uh, through you know experiences as kids because a lot of them grew up on this island or the fact that you know, they're all going through all of this together too. Uh, and yeah, I, I found all of that to be really rewarding because a lot of these conversations that happen with these characters, finding these little backstories of what's going on, it sort of puts in perspective, you know, compared to a lot of other films and, and television shows that you see with, you know, the, the horror backdrop. It just puts into perspective if the well... I guess the roundedness of the way that Mike Flanagan constructs a lot of his characters and a lot of his sequences, you know, the, the idea that these characters are the catalyst of their own stories as well, which is, it's just interesting. It's hard to put into words exactly what he's able to do, but I just find it to be incredibly impressive the way that he puts everything together and how little moments earlier on in the show have implications to what happens at the end of the show and, everything like that. It's just incredibly impressive. I, I really liked the way that the story all wrapped up as well. Um, essentially, the priest has the idea that he can, you know, better everyone if, he, if they 
die and resurrect as this superior race. Um, and he had everyone locked in the church because he was hoping to just isolate it to just the church so that this group of Catholics essentially can, you know, live their their lives as a superior race. And I guess that's what um, Bev wants as well. They want to just have this superiority over everyone, but Bev opens the doors and just unleashes uh, these these creatures essentially because they have no control over their bloodlust and it's proven quite early on that this bloodlust isn't something yeah it's not a choice it's just something that happens so when father paul kills joe coley it's not out of you know anger or hate towards joe coley it's out of necessity because he needs to feed to survive and that's what they establish with these creatures so when they're unleashed on the town it's just complete and utter chaos um, I mentioned briefly uh, about the cats, so that's a little implication as to what happens at the end of the film, or, or the film again, the series. These cats wash up on the beach after a horrific storm, a storm where Riley thinks that he sees Monsignor. We find out that it wasn't actually Monsignor, it was um, the vampire, the winged vampire creature that's been brought to the island uh, and there's like hundreds and hundreds of cats along this beach line and they're all drained of blood. Uh, we find out later on that that's, well, it's not ever explicitly told, but it's heavily implied that the vampire creature was feeding on the on the stray cats on the island. It's mentioned early on that there's thousands of stray cats. I don't really understand where they would have come from because it's quite a small island and I don't think they all came over by ferry. So that's not really well established, but... The implication is that these stray cats are the food source for this vampire creature. And, yeah, I, I found all of that to be really uh, interesting as well, just the, the inner dynamic and the workings of this creature. We don't really know what it is. We know that it was found in, like, a cave in Jerusalem, so that's why they think that it's, you know, this religious figure. Maybe it's a angel from heaven, but... The design of the creature itself, it looks pretty horrific. It looks like depictions of Satan. Like it just has this really, it's this winged beast um, that, that's blood hungry and and quite vile to look at. So it doesn't really have that uh, religious look in the sense that it's something holy. It looks like it's something demonic. Um, and that's quite horrific as well, That just the design. And it's quite creepy um, seeing the creature appear at the... Uh, rec hall where um, Riley's meeting with Father Paul for his um, regular AA meetings, and when um, Father uh, Father Paul meets with this creature here because he needs his blood to because he's thirsty and he needs the the sustenance that it provides, Riley walks in on the on the creature and Father Paul, and the creature attacks Riley um, and turns Riley into one of the vampire creatures, but. Riley does not want to conform with Father Paul's ideologies and what he plans to do. He pretty much sits him down and unveils his plan of what what's the go is, what's going on, what you can do with this information. He lets Riley go um, to Bev's dismay, um, and Riley goes straight to his love interest, um, which is quite sweet, just their relationship in general, and that's Kate Siegel. Um, who plays Aaron Green. little fun fact for you too, uh, Kate Siegel is actually Mike Flanagan's wife in real life, so that's why she does appear in a lot of his stuff, including Hush and, of course, The Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor. 
Um, but yeah, uh, Riley essentially tells Aaron what's going on. Aaron's like, why did you take me all the way out in the ocean then to tell me this? Like, are you here to isolate me? What, what did you want to do? And he said, no, I'm here to show you what happens because I knew that you weren't going to believe me when I told you. He turns to Ash in front of her uh, in a very beautiful depiction as well where we're seeing the actual, like what's actually happening in Aaron's reaction to him turning to dust, which is incredibly sad. She's she's horrified as she would be, but there's the beautiful flip side of the coin too where he's going into the afterlife and being accepted and forgiven by the girl that he killed in his drunk driving accident and that was really sweet because he's done the better thing here and he's sort of come full circle where he's found redemption because he's warned her of what hap- what's going to happen and you need to save these people, you need to save everyone. Um, and that whole sequence was really beautiful and well put together. It wasn't really expected. I didn't want Riley to die um, and I found it actually quite sad like when Joe Coley dies too because you feel like they're on the mend and they're, they're getting better. Um, he left notes as well as a part of his AA, um, I guess, process. Uh, he leaves a note to his father. His father goes to handle the notes, and we've had the re- uh, revelation that Monsignor is actually Father Paul. There's a note that's addressed to Monsignor, and the quote reads something like, in ashes to, uh, ashes to dust, um, we'll find a brighter day, or something along those lines. It's a biblical quote. I can't exactly remember it line for line. Uh, but it's pretty much saying, screw you, Father Paul, everything's coming out sort of thing. So Father Paul has this deadline now that his grand plan isn't going to work, and that's all because of Riley, and I like that redemptive arc as well. I've only briefly touched on as well Aaron's relationship with Riley. They they grew up together and then drifted apart, both going their own separate ways. Aaron's been married, um, Riley, of course, being in prison, so... They haven't really had that time to reconnect. And because of the, being in the midst of what's going on as well, it sort of falls a bit by the wayside for them. And I guess they never really got their timing right. Um, so the moments they do spend together in the, in the series do really work for me because I like seeing their relationship blossom. I like, even if it's just friendship, I like their friendship. It's quite sweet. Um, and it's well acted. The two actors are fantastic together. It's nice seeing Zach Gilfoyd um, get deliver this kind of performance. He's capable of it, definitely. I've seen him in quite a few things, uh, Friday Night Lights, of course, and uh, The Purge, uh, I think it was Anarchy, the second Purge film, um, which he was quite good in as well. But he really gets to sink his teeth into something good here, and he delivers a really good performance, which is something that... Mike Flanagan's quite good at is getting these performances out of a really talented cast. Um, But I think that he does a really good job here and I really liked their relationship. Like I mentioned, some of the conversations they have, their monologues are quite long. But if you're interested in the conversation pieces that are brought forward uh, when they are talking to one another, it's quite sweet and it's really well acted. So it does really... um, I guess elevate both both um, of their characters. Uh, there's a great sequence after Riley returns to Mass and he's leaving, and uh, they decide to walk home together and they're catching up. and It's a bit of an exposition dump that's hidden through characters' dialogue, uh, but the two of them are walking home and scene goes for about eight eight or nine minutes, and um, they're just talking. But because the conversation was mundane in a good way. 
um, I didn't realize that it was all a one take. Uh, it was like a, a shot tracking backwards. So we're focused on the two characters as the shot goes back and forth uh, to their house. And it was all one take. And it's just the craftsmanship behind Mike Flanagan and the way that he moves a shot that I didn't realize it. And yeah, hats off to Mike Flanagan because it's a fantastic shot and it's a great way to keep the conversation moving so it doesn't really feel stagnant and it quite it works quite well for the actual um, the story too because you're not seeing two characters just sit down t- uh, sitting down and talking rather the camera's moving and the characters are moving so whenever bored uh, which is a good way to do those sequences because I guess it's mandatory for the story to move forward because we need to know who these characters are what their relationship is um, I don't like the use of flashbacks so I'd rather see it through characters talking to one another. And it's just a simple tracking shot of the two of them talking, but it's just because of the way that the camera moves that it just feels like it's a bit classier than your your average sequence. So I did really appreciate that. I also really liked, um, I, I guess, the the way that the story concluded. So in the last episode, we sort of have our, our little group of characters who uh, have survived the initial incidents in the church. Um, and we get given this sequence in the last episode, which is quite horrific. It's very Jonestown-esque where um, the people are all given, because they've all been fed blood uh, for the last, you know, however long Father Paul's been operating for. Um, so they've all got the vampire gene in them already. And the last, I guess, moment of their transformation is their death and resurrection. So they're all given this poison and the poison kills them uh, all and brings uh, most of them back, and those who haven't taken the poison are then killed off by um, these vampires because they're essentially uh, yeah, eating everyone because of this need to eat. Um, and it's just this massacre in this church, and it's horrific. It's honestly horrific. And the way that it's all filmed and put together, it's just like, oh, wow, that's one of the more intense scenes I've seen in a horror related um film or television show recently and it's just put together in a way where it's quite confronting um you might need to look away especially with the death of a few kids and things like that but um it's necessary for the story and to emphasize the brutality of what bev's doing um more so than father paul because he's not really aware and i think the idea when they were eating people i think he was hoping that they would be brought back uh, finding out that that's not what happened and they were released on the island and just eating everyone. He's pretty horrified of that and realises that they were actually wrong with what they were trying to do. And, yeah, all of that put together is quite confronting. Um, but, yeah, uh, essentially Bev wanted there to be a, a connection to Revelations and she burns all the buildings, hoping that the church and the hall will be the only buildings left. Um, but our little band of heroes have burnt everything else down, so... Yeah, when the sun rises in the morning, they're all going to die. Um, and like I said, Bev's death is just incredibly satisfying. She goes to the beach and tries to bury herself, trying to keep out of the sun because the whole island's on fire at this point. And yeah, the sun hits her in the morning and she turns to ash and it's so satisfying because she's just a horrible, horrible person. Uh, and yeah, it's a really satisfying ending. We have our um, two characters, so uh, Riley's brother as well as uh, the the girl who, who was uh, once a quadriplegic. Um, the two of them are out on, on the boat and they've escaped. Um, but it, it's a bittersweet ending, I guess, because their whole lives have been ruined in the sense that they've lost everyone that they love, but they've walked away 
learning a bit about themselves and yeah, I guess being survivors. So that's that's the concluding shot is the two of them on the on the boat as they look back over the island and yeah, it looks like that the vampires have been stopped in their tracks. So that's the end of the show really and I found it to just be a really enjoyable show. It was really well put together, really well directed, terrifically acted. It's just a really, really good show and I would recommend it to Mike Flanagan fans and people wanting something different too because the first four episodes are definitely better than the last three but it's just because of the setup. You're, you're wanting to know what's going on so your intrigue's heightened a little and once you finally find out what's going on, it's not disappointing, it's just... It's different. I guess that's the best way to put it. It's different. It's not what we were expecting. So, you know, you have that connotation of thinking, oh, that, was, that wasn't what I was expecting, but I guess it's okay because it is different. Um, but, yeah, I, I found it to be thoroughly entertaining. Um, and up until episode the end of episode four, it was honestly a 10 out of 10 for me. I was, I was loving it. Uh, but then, you know, five, six, and seven happen, and it sort of drifts off a little for me. It doesn't ruin it, but it just sort of loses me a little. But because of the philosophical connections to life, death, the afterlife, all of those important questions are asked and answered in, in the context of the show, and I enjoyed that. So I, I found it to just be a bit more meaningful than your average TV show. Uh, so I'm going to give Midnight Mass a 9 out of 10. I did really, really enjoy it. Just a little let down with those last three episodes and some of the monologues go on a little too long for me. But if you're a fan of Mike Flanagan, you know exactly what you're getting into. And in that sense, it really doesn't disappoint. It's a fantastic show uh, and it's now streaming on Netflix. So definitely go and check it out. But that brings this review to a close, guys. So thank you very much for listening. It was a bit longer than your average review, but there was a bit to delve into here. So I'm glad I took the time to actually speak through it all. Uh, make sure you check out my Halloween Spooktacular reviews. I had a great time doing those in October. And I guess this is kind of like a Halloween hangover review a bit uh, as well because it is a horror-themed TV show that I'm reviewing. But yeah, definitely check out those reviews, guys. Make sure you also rate and review the podcast uh, down below. All your reviews help me become better at what I'm doing and sort of help me get noticed among the podcasting community as well. Uh, make sure you also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at OzMovieGeek. That's at OzMovieGeek. If you have any questions or any um, suggested films you would like me to review as well, reach out to me on any of my social media platforms or you can email me at OzMovieGeek at gmail.com. That's OzMovieGeek at gmail.com. That brings this review to a close, guys. So thank you all very much for listening and I look forward to getting back into it and getting another review out to you very shortly. So until next time, guys, peace out.